Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Companies Editor Ian Smith. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you? I'm wonderful. And Deputy Companies Editor Mark Robinson, how are you, Mark? I'm very well, thanks, John. How are you? I'm wonderful, thanks. Okay, so, busy week on the results front. Yes. Insane week on the results front again. 26 more pages of results analyses. Yeah, 25 next week as well, judging by the look of the latest flat plan. Yeah, and on top of that, we've had a budget. We've had a budget, and we've got some interesting features in the magazine as well, the main one of which was contributed by you, was it not, Robbo? Yes, I've been looking to the uh, defence market, but we'll go on to that a bit later, no doubt. Yes, we certainly will. And we're going to talk about some, some of the key results, but let's start with the main stories of the week, the seven days page where we explore the wider news world. There are a few things to say about the budget. There wasn't much in it. It's the last, it was the last spring budget before it moves formally to the autumn. Obviously, Philip Hammond, Chancellor, having got rid of autumn statements. Apparently, it was very thin. It was very thin. 28 measures versus 77, I think, in George Osborne's last budget. Yeah, sure was. There wasn't that much in there. Uh, there wasn't pre-flagged. There was some extra money for social care. In terms of the stuff that affects our readers, it was probably more on the personal finance side, which I'm sure they're going to discuss on their podcast, around the cutting to uh, the uh, tax-free dividend allowance being cut. It's only just been re- uh, instated, but it was cut from £5,000 to £2,000 from 2018, which will affect investors with um, you know larger uh, investment portfolios. So a lot of our readers... That, that sure are not held in tax wrappers. They're not held in tax wrappers. So obviously there are things you can do, such as have a stocks and shares ISA um, to protect a certain amount of your um, investment. Um, But yeah, worth listening and reading our personal finance content for exactly how that impacts you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, As Philip Hammond pointed out at the time, um, the the, uh, new personal allowance and the increased ISA allowances actually do offset some of that. So not perhaps as disastrous as, as it first seems for investors, but nevertheless, a bit of a a bit of a struggle for uh, for some of our readers, no doubt, with large shareholdings that are not incorporated within ISIS. Yeah, and this was part of a wider uh, move by Philip Hammond to increase the tax take from self-employed people and inco- um, as people that have incorporated. So it's it's part of a wider, because of these changes to the state pension, which have equalised sort of the benefits between self-employed people and employed people, he's saying well, we should close some of the gap in terms of how they're treated by HM revenue. So there are reasons that uh, kind of go into it. At the same time, there's been a big political backlash, um, but... As you say, there are mitigating factors here. But there's, I mean, I think the backlash is largely because it broke a conservative manif- election manifesto promise, rather than the fact that this is this is not a uh, an unfair thing to have done. No, exactly. So. And depending on how you look at it, I mean, if it's, obviously this is a progressive move in some ways because it impacts on wealthier um, people more than it does low income people. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, for, for our readers, there will be a, there will be a certain impact to these. Um, that they'll have to look at. But the reason I mentioned the political backlash is not because we have a political discussion, but more because um, it suggests that some of this might be slightly tweaked in future. There is a chance that it might be. There's been a, you know, a growing kind of momentum against some of the changes. But yeah, as I say, that's more on the how it affects your personal finances. Yeah, uh, I mean, the care funding was interesting. Um, and Megan has written a good piece on this because there are a number of com- companies involved uh, in that sector on the UK stock market, on the London stock market, is it going to affect them? 
you'd straight away think that perhaps it would be bad for them if the government was putting more money into that, that the private operators would be hurt. But actually, it's the opposite. The fact that local governments will have more money to spend on social care will benefit the private hospital groups that are going to be supplying some of that or taking up some of that slack from the public sector. So I think it's broadly been seen as as positive. Um, The uh, yeah. So we're talking companies like Cambion and Caretech and uh, Spire Healthcare and Circle Holdings. So, yeah, no, I, I think it's quite interesting. It's something that I've experienced myself firsthand. I've not been in a home, but uh, it's something we've been looking at uh, with my, my wife's dad, for example. And, yeah, it is, there is something that needs to be resolved there. Um, and we've, we've had to go down the private route. There are no real public sector places available so yes i think the private groups do stand to benefit from this i mean from my own experience no exactly right i think the only thing you say about this this isn't a long-term solution this is a big chunk of extra money in the short term um a green paper has been promised which will be yet another consultation on the care system and we had the door not report previously so there are some that are saying well we know what we need to do um to correct some of the problems or to make up some of the shortfall it's a what we need to do is take those decisions. But, mm. Yeah, well, extra money. Some argue as well, given the demographics, that the problem's virtually intractable. Yes, and it's one where the problem before has been um, partisanship amongst the, in Westminster, whereas actually now there is cross-party consensus. This needs to be dealt with, um, but I don't think anyone saw the changes here as dealing with it yet. But we'll wait and see what's in the green paper. But extra money has been welcomed, and yeah, stand, and the companies that operate in this space do stand to benefit. Yeah, I think it's a discussion that needs to be uh, held for another time because it, it is a complicated one. Uh, business rates, there'd obviously been some uh, concern about the big jump in, in business rates uh, that's about to come in because of the increase in rateable values. Uh, and there were some measures to address that. This would affect many companies on the UK stock market. Yeah, many. But I think with a lot of the easements that they're putting in, that's the smaller uh, operators. So, yeah, we saw um, certain certain exemptions, certain caps put in place to try and limit the impact. There was quite a big um, backlash from the smaller business lobby against these changes because mm-hmm. they're dealing with a number of uh, challenges. Uh, there was also some good news for um, pubs. They'll get a discount. Um, those pubs with a rateable value of less than £100,000, which I think is the vast majority of um, smaller operators will um, yeah, receive a discount although yeah. some of them see it as a discount on something that's actually been increased so perhaps not as welcome in overall terms Well like the care issue itself uh, there's an underlying issue here and that's uh, structural changes to the uh, the retail market as well and so this is uh, effectively another holding position which will sort of play out over time And that's something that the Chancellor did refer to um, retailers that don't have bricks and mortars operations um, having a structural benefit here as you say Mark so that's something we might be able to uh, expect in future that the government is going to be paying attention to the um, you know the e-tailers um, mm. and how the kind of level of tax and uh, burden they are taking versus the bricks and mortar operators. Just how long has the British High Street been dying for now? Oh, forever, just like the NHS. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there you go. Um, right, let's move on. Uh, Standard Life Aberdeen. Uh, you've written about this in your Taking Stock column. It's the lead news story. It's on seven days. Let's talk about what's going on there. Yeah, so Standard Life, one of the major life assurers, which has actually in recent times become more of an asset manager itself and has a big asset management arm, is going to be merging with uh, Aberdeen Asset Management. It looks Um, like a done deal, is it? It looks very like Dundee, the major shareholders in Aberdeen support it. Both share prices went up on the deal. The argument for it is that there's been a rush to scale amongst the active 
asset managers. And this is this is really to overcome the challenge from the passive industry, one one assumes. Exactly. So we had Janus Henderson, that was the big merger uh, last year. And, and this is even bigger, create a huge active manager, one of the biggest in Europe, with actually a lot of complementary business lines. So Standard Life has a good retail channel via IFAs. Aberdeen has good institutional ties. There's lots of complementary sides to these businesses in terms of the areas where they invest. Aberdeen being an emerging markets biased uh, fund manager, which has hurt it in recent times. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of arguments for it and synergies, um, which will be uh, politically unappealing in in some uh, respects because they will uh, involve a lot of job cuts. At the same time, there are clear synergies from merging platforms and so on. The argument against it, I suppose, from a standard life shareholder's perspective, and I got into that a little bit in my column, uh, would be that you are creating a business that is ever more cyclical. You're tying um, your fortunes to active management and saying this tie-up demonstrates our commitment to being one of the leading active managers. But as you say, the threat from passive is huge and the threat um, from clients wanting to control the only thing they can control, which is the cost they actually spend um, on um, on their investments might mean that if we look at this in five, ten years, if this goes through, will Standard Life be happy that the business has moved away from its traditional life assurance business so much to becoming uh, an asset manager that goes with the swings of the market? That's a bigger question. The other related question, I suppose, is is Aberdeen Asset Management the best company to tie up with? It has its own problems. It's been dealing with a lot of outflows from its emerging market um, funds, which are its major funds. So uh, there's been a lot of positive reaction to the merger. There's obvious financial synergies. Um, but in terms of what it means strategically for Santa Life as a business, we'll, we'll see whether it creates a stronger business with time. Yeah, I mean, my, my view on uh, on active managers uh, and scale and, and the benefits that that would bring is, is not necessarily to pool money because large funds tend to act like dragger funds anyway, but would be to uh, just generally enable them to reduce the cost of, of uh uh, the cost of the end investor of, of owning actively managed funds to the point where they become a little bit more competitive with passive. And I assume that's that's the thinking here. Yeah, and I, I'd agree that would be a good approach. I mean, multi-asset is an area where Standard Life Investments has been hugely um, successful with its GARS fund, although in recent, um, very recent times, some of that has reversed. But yeah, if you can get active management towards more of a you know, a lower priced commodity that private investors and institutional investors can pick up, then yeah, you can stave off some of that impact of the passive managers, which still only make up a certain amount of the market. They aren't not all conquering. It's just if you look at where the growth is. Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly among the funds that we like, you know, some of the best funds, according to our readers, uh, have very, very low management fees. Uh, already in the investment trust space. And transparency is an issue as well. But I believe uh, legislation has been introduced over the last few years to improve that. Yeah, yeah. And there's also the cost. Is, cost is a big issue, though. Mm. Cost is a big issue, and everyone's looking at the strength of passive at the moment. But let's not forget we're at a time where equity markets are all-time highs. Yeah, so passive passive funds look good, don't they? I mean, they've, they've done well, but, but not in and of themselves, but because the markets have done well. Exactly. What happens when that reverses? Yeah, what happens when that reverses, which is what active managers say, which is we will demonstrate right, our value. Too. I think they're absolutely right. I think the active man, my my view, my personal view, that the active management industry uh, has been somewhat unfairly disparaged as a as a, a homogenous whole. When actually there are very very interesting pockets within it that that do prove their worth year after year after year, and the debate has been oversimplified. 
Yeah, exactly right. Okay, right. What else we've got on the news pages? Uh, seven days we have, so there's more concerns around the car industry uh, with the takeover of uh, Vauxhall Opal by General Motors. Although I was just looking at uh, Looker's results, actually, and uh, that's been quite strong, the new car market for them. So, yeah, it, it does depend which area you're in, which which clients you have. They've got a good fleet um, division as well. Um, yeah, there are still worries about this, and it reflects in the valuations that are being put on the motor retailers at present. Mm. And we don't have any motor manufacturers I talk about in my column, my editorial this week, but uh, the automotive industry is important in the UK throughout the value chain from retail through to manufacturing. Uh, yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, what's interesting about this deal is the effect that it may have on uh, GM over in the States as well, because it uh, effectively removes uh, two loss-making uh, segments of the business, and it reduces their exposure to uh, Euro risk, uh, Brexit, also um, any uh, legislation that might uh, follow in the wake of the VW emissions scandal. It uh, frees up capital for them as well. It feeds into their uh, new strategy, which is uh, rather than being aiming to be the largest car ma- manufacturer in the world, being the best, you know, concentrating on those parts of the business that are the most profitable, uh, looking at uh, return on capital and return to shareholders as well. All of these are stated objectors, GM, and they may have uh, actually got the, a monkey off their back with this deal. Do you think that by the same token, you could question how valuable this deal will be for PSA. It gives them, you know, the second biggest um, business in Europe. But is that necessarily a, you know, a sine qua non? Well, well exactly. I mean, um, I'm, I'm not quite actually sure what happened to the share price, uh, bearing in mind as well that it's still state-controlled. Uh, but uh, the incentive from uh, their perspective seemed a, a little bit uh, uh, a little bit more... Cost, cost cutting, isn't it? Well, which is why there's concerns about jobs in the UK. Well, yeah, so that, that was one of it as well. But it still seems to me why. What was the point of buying up two loss-making arms that have tried to restructure in recent years to, but to no avail? So just ahead of a major break in terms of the supply chain, or um, yeah, the, the trading relationship between uh, the, the two parts of the business. Yeah, there's that as well. And plus, I think um, they've taken on uh, two and a half. Uh, billion dollars in unfunded pension uh, uh, deficit as well so uh, c- commitments rather so I mean that's a that's an interesting part of the deal too so from uh, the French perspective it's difficult to see the uh, what the incentive was scale scale yeah. it's all scale well, yeah so I know it's actually uh, looking on seven days page the numbers 23.9 billion value of domestic M&A deals completed in the UK in 2016 highest level since 2008 so deals 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 this is uh, this is where we are right now yeah and some people think that's because of the value of sterling fallen that you've seen more of that activity uh, but then obviously we've had some really even bigger deals um, rebuffed. Yeah, some, some suggest this is a kind of uh, end of cycle behaviour, that when the growth is, is becoming that much harder to come by, you buy. Yeah, and it, it's exactly right. And um, yeah, I got that into that a little bit in my profit concentration feature last year, this ever-increasing rush for scale, and you can see that in a few different sectors currently. Okay, one other interesting news story this week, Shawbrook, the Challenger Bank, which itself was subjected to uh, a takeover rumour approach, even. Approach, which it has rebuffed from its largest shareholder, Pollen Street Capital Partners. So, yeah, they came with an offer, they increased the offer, and then they were pushed back. The business thinks that it undervalues them, they can get more value themselves. That We actually have results from Shawbrook this week. And, well. and Aldermore as well, another challenger bank as well. 
Um, yeah, yeah, and results from Aldermore as well. Yeah, on the Shawbrook side, they had some problems last year where they had asset finance business that was written outside of their loan criteria, uh, which is a... Uh, euphemism for just bad loans so they had some issues there they had a big surge in their buy to let lending business ahead of the stamp juicy changes as you'd expect but then things died away after that um, but generally the overall loan book book growth was good so you can see why management think that the best way to grow this business is organically um, with their hand on the tiller similar story at audible yeah, similar story at Aldermore. The buy-to-let lending was um, a big boost, um, but obviously with the imposition of the higher stamp duty, that really slowed down that market. So we're yet to get a sense of, you know, post that increase in tax force, secondary properties, is this still going to be such a strong market? The argument that it will be such a strong market over the long term is the structural shift towards renting that doesn't show any type, signs of slowing. Mm-hmm. And we had Metro Bank results as well, didn't we? Everyone's favourite little high street, new high street bank. They looked okay too. Yeah, it's the same continuing story at Metro Bank, which is that it's a very high cost growth model that they have, doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing in the industry. Um, growing um, their branches, costly branches, putting every bit of focus on customer service. And actually, we have a podcast where Emma Powell, our banking correspondent, a special podcast, has interviewed uh, the CEO of Metro Bank. So you can find that on ACAST. Um, but yeah, they have a, a high growth model. It is it does seem to be working, but they are struggling. Like all retail banks that we've seen through this uh, reporting season, they are struggling with the lower uh, interest rate, which is suppressing their net interest margin. So mm. it's not a great time to be in retail banking. No, no, but the losses are shrinking. The losses are shrinking, and the bits and the top line is growing. So that's good. That is so good. We're moving in the right direction there. But they are quite highly highly valued too. So the call is whether you think um, that they are going to get, be able to generate enough profit. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, lots more on the results front. Let's uh, let's come back to results uh, in a jiffy. Uh, actually, before we do that, I mean, you mentioned Emma's Metro Bank podcast on Acast. We have another very interesting podcast on Acast this week, which is James Norrington's interview with Nobel laureate Robert Schiller. Uh, on the narratives of investing. It's fascinating. Have a listen. Robert Schiller is a man to be listened to. And, and, and basically his story is that uh, we have to be very careful about the stories we are told when making investment decisions. But go onto the podcast and uh, listen to that in more detail. Mark, let's talk, uh, let's talk about the arms industry because that is the uh, subject of the cover feature this week. It's a fascinating subject. Certainly lots going on geopolitically that would suggest that this is an industry you need exposure to right now. Well, yes, it's it's not just the um, the global security situation, powerless as that may seem to many people, but it's also uh, linked with uh, technological change and also political change, uh, most famously, of course, in the United States uh, with Donald Trump. Um, let's, start, uh, let's start there because Donald, I mean, the US has always been a, the world's biggest spender on defense. Exactly. Uh, and, and Donald Trump wants to spend more. The world's uh, biggest customer, the world's biggest producer, and uh, Donald Trump is looking to boost the overall uh, Pentagon budget by, I think, $54 billion uh, over the coming year. A, a fair portion of that, I think about two-thirds of that, had already been uh, proposed by his predecessor, predecessor Barack Obama. Uh, but uh, still, it's, it's a near 10% rise uh, in absolute terms, which is uh, was a huge given the Pentagon budget itself. And I think it's the largest uh, year-on-year rise since uh, the commencement, the first year of the, the Reagan administration. 
And I think uh, Reagan only really managed uh, the highest uh, rate he ever managed was 14% in one year. So it's, uh, it's pretty hefty. Either way, there's going to be more money going towards defence there. Well, yes, almost certainly, given that two-thirds of the increase had been proposed by the uh, Democratic administration previously. That should ease its um, uh, passage through uh, Congress. Do we know where it's going? Uh, well, no, I certainly don't know where it's going at the moment. Do we, do we have any ideas where it might be going? What kind of areas will they be spending more money on? Well, certainly one area where not just the US but the UK and European governments are clamouring is is cyber security. I mean, that's come to light uh, again as a, as a result of the US election as well and allegations that uh, uh, that that the electoral process itself had been undermined by uh, Russian efforts uh, in uh, cyberspace. Whether that's true or not, we don't know at this stage. But it, I don't think we ever will either, but there you go. Well, possibly not, but uh, it just highlights that this is a, a real growth area in uh, defence markets as well. I mean, in, in many respects, the... Um, uh, the defence uh, sector has lagged uh, the private sector in this regard because uh, any of us who use uh, online banking or any other form of uh, digitalised uh, commerce will know that uh, that's a, a very big part of uh, uh, of the private industry now. It, it is, and this is something you mentioned, um, and in fact something that, that what you would usually consider to be very defence-focused groups are, are actually increasingly looking at is actually what they can sell to the private sector. Well, yeah, BAE Systems, uh, most famously, they're, they're, um, uh, they have a, a, a lead technology role in uh, cyber defence. Uh, well, they, they bought a company many years back uh, called Detica. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Detica was, it was kind of 50-50. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, um, but they, in just over the last 18 months, two years, they've pushed uh, harder and harder to get into the private sector because obviously that's where consistently you're, you're going to uh, be able to generate revenues. Um, there's other area, the other area that I pointed to as well as unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, again, this is one of the areas which um, uh, is being looked at very hard by the military at the moment for a number of reasons, for a number of strategic reasons. But Underlying it all is the fact that uh, is uh, the the cost associated associated with generating uh, modern jet fighters. Uh, most famously, the F thirty five Joint Strike Fighter program has run over budget. It was uh, well. This is uh, this is one that Trump threatened to cancel. Yeah, he he, he was one of his uh, in one of his tweet fests. He threatened to. Uh, cancel or curtail or, or shrink the program um, during the election campaign proper. Uh, but even at that stage, I, I believe that um, uh, Lockheed Martin, BAE and a number, number of the other contractors were saying that costs were actually coming down because of scale benefits that are actually uh, managed to um, get sales proceeds from uh, more and more of these F- aircraft. And so there was a bit of a lag. It's, it's still prohibitively expensive though and um, so BAE uh, have been uh, developing um, uh, uh, the Tyrannus uh, uh, drone. Which is what we've got on the cover. Which is what we've got on the cover, which, uh, was, which has been dubbed by um, aviation experts as the most advanced um, uh, plane ever to be developed in this country. And it's providing a, uh, it's a, essentially a prototype at the moment, but it's providing, we're trying to find exactly what is um, technically capable for this type of unmanned aerial vehicle at the moment. And when I spoke to BAE, they, they couldn't obviously say anything about it, couldn't give any detail whatsoever, but it's generally held that this um, can travel at uh, supersonic speeds. Uh, it's uh, virtually undetectable to radar, and it can independently uh, pick out targets in the field, which is... Uh, 
fairly frightening in a, in a way. It sounds terrifying. And, and it's it like, sounds like a, a Cylon from Battlestar Galactica. It looks a bit like a Cylon from Battlestar Galactica. Well, it, it is the stuff of uh, science fiction, really, but... Uh, as I say, uh, be uh, loath or unable to comment at this stage, and it's feeding into a. It'll feed in eventually to um, uh, a larger uh, European project in, involving some of the large defence contractors yeah, in I mean, France it, and Italy as well. It, it already involves some UK contractors as well. So we talk yeah, about yeah. kinetic. Um, yeah, they're all feeding it into at the moment. Uh, uh, Rolls Royce, um, ob- obviously. Um, so they're all. Um, I mean, with, with any large-scale project like this, it's, it's invariably uh, a concerted effort uh, just because of the uh, technological challenges. Yeah, I mean, one thing I will say, I mean, some of the defence contractors uh, that are listed in London have not exactly been having a wonderful time recently. Cobham, for example, has had a number of profit warnings. I mean, is, is, this, is this the turning point for the, those sort of businesses? Well, um, it, it, was, it was interesting when I was looking at it as well because obviously, um, for the sake of our readership, we were looking at valuations above anything else and... Uh, the stock of a number of uh, defence companies have been rising since the early part of uh, last year, you know, Cobham being an exception there. But the valuations at the moment, while I say they're not overly stretched, when you look at those uh, growth projections in the market, it's still, you know, the, the value isn't absolutely compelling uh, at this time. I, I do point out uh, companies like uh, BAE and uh, General Dyna dynamics when you're um, uh, putting a portfolio together, they would be worthwhile because they are a sufficient scale, back to that word scale again, and breadth of their um, operational activities that they would capture uh, most of that growth in, uh, well, the growth in in those areas that I've mentioned, but also they um, they feed heavily into um, existing U.S. and European defense contracts. So they, they stand to uh, benefit even over the long term. I mean, you talk about some other uh, smaller UK contractors here, Ultra Electronics being one. Uh, that, that you, you, it's in the table, it's not in the feature, but it's in the results section. Yeah, it, it, I, I actually I didn't cover it. Ah. I, I didn't cover it this way. Alex Newman did, but he, uh, he told me they were, uh, they, were, they were pretty good on the face it, of it. It's um, an interesting company. Lots yeah. and lots of capabilities, lots of specialist technical niches that it's in. Yeah, yeah. This is what I always liked. I mean, you were talking about... Um, uh, we're reaching a stage now where uh, companies uh, reaching the end of the cycle and consolidation is a part of a number of sectors. It normally is a, a part of aerospace and defence. So you know, it's possibly we could see some activity in the in the coming months. Cobham had a not very good set of results, obviously, with the rights issue. Um, they are quite a good example of having a very good product, but then kind of suffering for it. it it's it's hard. what what kind of lessons can investors learn from well, yeah, Cobbins' experience with I point to the, uh, the, the nature of defence contracting and that's changed in recent years but unfortunately um, you get certain um, types of contracts that aren't open to tender that are agreed up front uh, with uh, the MOD or whatever defence department it happens to be and this often leads to uh, um, incorrect pricing at the outset it's, it's not dissimilar to some of the uh, some of the all services companies as well, when they've got these um, long dated uh, capital intensive projects, very difficult to price them at the beginning uh, of any, uh, the outset of any project uh, accurately. So Cobham, uh, unfortunately, has got this legacy contract, which is linked to uh, in, in flight refueling, which is odd, really, given that the company was actually a pioneer in this in this area. But that's really dragged on profitability uh, over the last uh, three years. And uh, 
there's no end in sight at the moment, so uh, I believe. No, it's, anyway, thank you, uh, Mark. It's a cracking, a cracking feature. Uh, it's not just obviously the US that's going to be spending. Uh, Trump is obviously putting pressure on uh, and some of the NATO partners in Europe to spend more. Uh, yeah, that's that's been well covered in the well press. Covered. I mean, um, but I guess it's a bit of tub thumping on on his part as well to uh, you know uh, to you know increase the political profile of that issue. True, plenty of European companies though that would like to see that happen. Uh, that you mentioned in the feature, uh, Dassault being uh, one of them. Excuse the pronunciation. Fin Mechanica, yeah, not a Fin Mechanica. So. Yeah. So very, uh, very interesting and capable companies over in Europe as well uh, that are definitely worth a look. Uh, OK, uh, it's interesting you actually mentioned uh, mispricing of contracts because one of the results this week was G4S, which has had its problems with large contracts uh, over the past few years. Turnaround uh, evidence there looking, looking very good. Uh, Ian, what else have you noticed on the results front that really caught your eye this week? In this week's issue, we have LSE's uh, results right up, a long analysis of that and... Um, if you leave aside the merger, which we discussed at length last week, things are going really well. The uh, ind- indices business mm. that you mentioned last week. Oh, that, that old <laughs> chestnut. Yeah, making have. a lot of money, is it? It's oh, making, funny that. Surprise, surprise, a lot of money. And and that, that whole division is doing really well. The clearing business, which you also mentioned last week, is being important um, to them and they're not wanting to lose parts of that um, in any geographies. That did well over uh, 2016 as well, the over-the-counter clearing of derivative transactions, which is a huge area mm. um, for banks. That is performing really well So it's as well, which is the continuation of some of the trends we've seen in previous years. But LSE is in good shape. I suppose one of the concerns is looking at the, the primary markets, for example, um, the amount of new issues for the main market was well down in 2015. We've just had this software group, Mysis, fail to come to the market in the UK. Mysis? Come well, back? Come back, as as discussed, and it might be that people are drawing on their past experience, but I saw a story saying that the Mysis, the FT was reporting that Mysis uh, might be considering a US listing. Now, that would be interesting if, if London is starting to lose or does start to lose listings of major companies to the US, perhaps due to pre-Brexit uncertainty or perhaps because they don't think it's as good a market for tech listings as the US. Um, well, I think that's probably true. I mean, this week you've had Snapchat, obviously, which took off. And no one can blame. IPO. Yeah, no one can blame London investors for being more discerning when it comes to. No, I think that I think that may be something to do with it. I, th- I think London investors may ask a few more questions, and because of that, these kind of tech businesses might not get the valuation they want. Yes, the bigger question then is, you know, L- London as a central financial centre is the second biggest financial centre in the, in the world its place uh, people will be very much looking at the primary markets and the health of those in 2017 and comparing them to uh, new york and the other major markets to see whether there has been a drop-off in issuance um yeah well their pattern i don't think has yet been established but it definitely is front of mind for a lot of people that look at the market but otherwise lse which that is just one part of what it does is trading well yeah Largely thanks to his information business. <laughs> a big part of it. It's all information. Uh, okay, so LSE uh, looking good, regardless of whether or not the merger goes ahead or the merger with anyone else goes ahead. So, Robert, what's caught your, your eye this week? Well, it's um, a specialty chemical company that I've been looking at for a while from a value angle. It's uh, Elementus, and um, 
Elementis, my dear Robert. Elementis, and, and what's interesting about uh, the company is that their expansion into uh, growth markets in Asia. Uh, there's, a, there's a structural story here. Obviously, as um, uh, median incomes rise in uh, Southeast Asia, more and more people uh, are buying personal care products. This is, so these are chemicals for, for cosmetics, basically? Well, exactly. They're, yes, they're yeah. propellants and, uh, and things to make, make uh, well, perfumes, uh, you name it, anything that goes into the, the stuff that you'd have in your bathroom cabinet at home. And, of course, uh, it's things that we in the West take, take for granted and they've become consumer staples. That, uh, is, that hasn't always been the case in Asian economies, but as uh, median incomes rise, uh, they suddenly become uh, desirable items, the ones that you need every week. And the subsidiary company, Summit Rias, that uh, Elementus acquired, is uh, the largest uh, producer into that market, and is uh, as, and, and the growth has been uh, uh, significant over the last eighteen months. But its projections for that uh, area of the business, which uh, are really buoying the share price at the moment. Indeed, um, it's had a good run it, uh, after we suggested buying it, but you've lost your bottle, haven't you? Yes, but based uh, and I, I got a, I got a ticking off from, from Algae Hall on this as well. But I just think, <laughs> well, as usual, but I, I, I just thought the ratings at the moment is very difficult to turn around. I think you know, uh, if you're going to uh, hold on to it for a, a long term investment, there's every reason that you could come in at the present level. But uh, given its relative multiples at the moment, I, uh, I slunk, I slunk out of the room with a tail between my legs. It's not done, for the first time. Not for the first time. It does stay. It's interesting as a kind of UK exporter in the sense that it does suffer from dollar strength, right? Because it manufactures a lot of its uh, chemicals in North America and then sells them around the world. So that's an interesting kind of FX angle for the readers. Yeah, well, the, there's a, a couple of other companies this week as well where we've had the converse uh, story with uh, with um, sterling weakness, if you like. Uh, we've, we've had a couple of um, manufacturers complain about uh, input costs. Yeah, I, 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 my view generally speaking speaking is that the sterling story the, the fx story is often paid far too much attention yeah because because it fluctuates yeah uh, and you know what's good one year might be different the next uh, both in terms of the rate and in terms of how the business is structured so well, uh, yeah, precise, well, and, 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 attention to this well i mean it's, it's significant from the the income front you know, it increases... Assuming it's a transactional cost rather than a translational one. Yeah. Yes. Um, but but uh, we've written about this plenty of times before. We don't need to talk about it now. Should we talk about Convertech? Because that, that's the story we picked out as the good week. Biggest float of the year, last year, talking to the IPO market. And it's been a good one. Yeah, it's been really good. For investors. Really good for investors. Um, if you don't know much about Convertech, um, its operations quite clear from the four uh, franchises that it operates. Wound care... Ostomy is in colostomy bags, uh, continents, and infusion. So plenty of great products there, but obviously yep. all very important. All very important. It actually ties quite neatly in with the long-term care story that we were discussing right at the beginning of this podcast. It's the same trends that will be driving this business. Exactly right. And um, some of these markets are really fast growing or expected to grow quite quickly ostomy for example is currently uh, well it's, it's supposed to grow at a maximum rate of six percent a year until 2020 the total addressable market that's a terrifying prospect for someone <laughs> getting old <laughs> yeah that is terrifying but as yeah these these aging dynamics are, are here to stay and they bought a um netherlands based company in that sector mm-hmm. uh, eurotech which is helping them yeah, and they, they're growing. As any company that comes from private equity background, you have to have one eye on the debt. But Which is 
Which looking at that ratio is pretty chunky, that gearing it, ratio. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty chunky, but at the same time, it's a business that's generating a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and once the one-off costs and charges um, to do with the IPO kind of fall into the background, then we'll better get a better picture of the profitability of the business. But it's definitely in growing markets. It has some important specialisms and things that are increasingly needed. Uh, so if you wanted to make a kind of structural long-term argument, you could. But then uh, there's a pretty hefty rating on it too. Uh, it's more expensive than its closest peer, which is not exactly the same kind of business as it, but still, you know, as close as you can get, probably Smith & Nephew. Um, so it trades a premium to Smith & Nephew. Which makes artificial joints. Exactly. It, so. I must admit, I, I, I upset my mum. She, my mum had a double knee replacement recently. And uh, I was like, how you doing, mum? Went to visit. How you doing, mum? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Where'd you get your knees from then? <laughs> 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 Never takes a day off. <laughs> exactly right. So slightly different, slightly different products, but uh, yeah, they're doing well. Yeah, and what, what else do we have? Um, Go Compare had a good boost to their revenues, um, but like with all the price comparison websites, the marketing costs are really high on that one. So Geo Compario, who you might have seen singing on a uh, gondola in Venice, I'll try not to try and ignore it. Um, it seems to be pulling in the pulling in the punters for that. All right. Okay. Well, we're running out of time. We've got about 65 more results in the magazine. <laughs> and we're going to go through every single one. And yeah, we, so, so get yourself a cup of tea. We'll be here for the next uh, three and a half hours. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. We, we're going to let you read them at your leisure in the magazine. Robo, you wanted to say something, didn't you? Well, no, no I was just going to, uh, when I covered Pure Circle, might be of interest to uh, uh, read that, That's not well. because they sent us a bag of, of non-sugar. Which we disposed of straight away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's just that they uh, they had a they effectively an import ban into the United States, uh, which was uh, overturned early in the early part of this year. It was even so, before Trump had got his hands on it. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, it was good news for them, and uh, we're looking uh, at the share price performance. They, they did make the point, however, it would take them t- some time before that uh, business uh, recovers to its former momentum. Just a word of advice to, to Pure Circle's PR. In future, don't send us some sugar cubes. Send us some products, proper products that yeah, have some, okay. like chocolate or something like that. Get me that one, Dom. Yeah, anyway, right. Okay, uh, so thank you very much. Uh, there's lots more in the magazine this week. It is, it is an absolutely mammoth issue. Uh, the usual tips, as I said, another 20-odd pages of results there. Lots and lots in the personal finance fun section, which they will no doubt be talking about on their podcast tomorrow. We have Share Pads Phil Oakley back talking about how to avoid value traps. Fantastic feature. Uh, the second in the, in the current Share Pad series. Definitely worth a look. John Barron is in the magazine this week, also talking about value. In fact, there's another article about value in the fun section. Value, value, value. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about value right now which I think we've, we've actually spoken about for quite some time. Lots of the comments section, as usual, and, uh, and actually even more news than we've had time to discuss. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ian. Pick up the magazine uh, in all good news agents, £4.90, or get online and subscribe. And if you like this podcast and don't want to miss any future podcasts that we might do, then you can subscribe at acast.com forward slash Investors Chronicle. And you'll find all of our previous shows, all of the personal finance shows, and all of the standalone podcasts we do, including the Metro Bank podcast I told you about earlier and the Sheila podcast that I mentioned that we did this week. And you can also find us on iTunes, where you can actually give us a rating and review us if you wish to do so. Five stars, please. Anyway, thank you all very much. And we'll be back next week. See you soon.